God, those communists are amazing. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Turn Left of the Podcast. I'm Mike, he, him, and tonight I'm here with Sterling and Ward, he, him, as well. And tonight, we're going to talk about the Cuban Revolution. So, to start off, we're going to talk a little bit about, uh, well, we're going to talk a lot about Fidel Castro. He's obviously the main character here. So, to start off, we'll go right back to the beginning. Um, so, Fidel Castro's father, Angel, fought in the Spanish-American War. His parents were themselves well-off landowners, and this will come up, this will come up again later. Uh, they grew sugar for the United Fruit Company. Friends of the pod, United Fruit Company. <laughs> um, so in the 30s and 40s, Cuba was a hotspot for American tourism. It was basically like an economic colony. American companies owned most of the industry, and the government was very corrupt and did the bidding of all the major companies and their cronies. Uh, Ward is going to get into this in a bit when he talks about the Platt Amendment. Um, at 15, the age of 15, Fidel went to the most exclusive school in Cuba, El Colegio de Belén. The Jesuits at that school taught him the history of Cuba, and they leaned towards nationalism, and they instilled that in young Fidel. Um, and I just wanted to make clear at this point that we've talked before about nationalism uh, and why it's bad, more specifically why it's inherently reactionary and anti-communist. But we should point out that in the case of colonized people, this is not the case. Just like left-wing quote-unquote discrimination against fascists for their voluntarily held beliefs, is not the same as right-wing actual discrimination against people for characteristics that they were born with and can't change. Nationalism in a colonized people, which they use in order to band together and combat their oppressors, is not the same as settlers and exploiters using nationalism to justify their crimes against humanity so that they can keep oppressing people and feel good about it. So that would be the difference between nationalism among colonized people as opposed to colonizers. And in the case of Cuba, it has pretty much always been colonized by pretty much the United States. So, but getting back to young Fidel, uh, in the school, he was recognized for his athletic ability, his photographic memory, and his work ethic. His teachers all said that he would go on to do great things someday. And they were right. Uh, now, Cuba, even before Castro, was a pretty revolutionary-minded country. There had been a revolt led by students in Havana against Gerardo Machado in the 30s, who was the dictator of Cuba at the time. And it was the common opinion at the time that if you wanted to influence politics, you needed to use guns to do it. And again, as Ward will describe, the Platt Amendment allowed the U.S. to pretty much control the Cuban, the Cuban economy. And the U.S. also deposed and replaced leaders, and the corruption of the politicians was common knowledge among the citizens. And I know I mentioned this already, but I just want to emphasize how rampant the corruption was. Um, and to that end, I actually was going to ask if Ward, you could do your Platt Amendment section here. Yeah, so I'm not going to get too deep into it. Anybody listening, if you want to learn more, you can look into it. Um, but real quick, the Platt Amendment was passed as part of the 1901 Army Appropriations Bill. It basically allowed the U.S. to do whatever it wanted with Cuba. In the Cuban economy, it's passed in present importance. Che Guevara wrote, quote, The Paris Peace Treaty of 1898 and the Platt Amendment of 1901 were the signs under which the new republic was born. In the, in the first, the settlement of accounts after the war war between two powers led to the withdrawal of Spain and the intervention of the United States on the island, which had suffered for years of cruel struggle. The Cubans were only observers. They had no part in the negotiations. The second, the Platt Amendment, established the right of the United States to intervene in Cuba whenever her interests demanded it. In May 1902, the political military oppression of the United States was formally ended, but her monopolistic power remained. Cuba became an economic colony of the United States, and this remained its main characteristic for half a century. 
you you keep saying her. You're referring to the United States as her. Yeah, that's what. Yeah. Okay. United yeah, States. That's what Shay in Shay wrote in his. Okay. Um, I think of the United article. States of as a man, like fucking up in only the way a man can. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> I guess it's like in the same. Um, I like respect that like ships on the ocean are referred to as women, like her. I guess we can't hear you, Mike. We, yeah, we can't hear anything you're saying. Sorry. Just to get it across to people, the impression I have is that um, Cuba, like, was pretty much run by these casinos and like these. It was like all the gas companies. Um, I think I have a, a list of it here that I'll get to in a little bit. But like all the companies that were or industries, entire industries that were owned by American companies in Cuba, and so they pretty much had their run of the place. And the casinos were a big part of that as well. But it was very much like a a tourist spot and some just, just like playground for Americans to go to. Um, so let's get back to uh, talking about young Fidel. Um, so when Fidel went to college, he met even more nationalist professors when he went there. And he concluded that Cuba's problems resulted from Cubans never really controlling their own country. And he blamed the United States. He was organizing strikes and protests. He ran for student president and he joined a gang. Pretty based. <laughs> um, was After it the, college, was it the Crips? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say that in Spanish. Uh, so after college, Fidel married his wife Myrta, and they spent a few months in New York City for the honeymoon. And this is when Fidel, Fidel began to teach himself English. Uh, when they moved back to Cuba, he started a law practice, and they had their first child. But they were always broke, and Fidel was looking for something more meaningful to do with his life. And he was incredibly passionate about politics, and he ran for a seat in the Cuban Congress on a platform of anti-corruption. And he was doing really well. Uh, he probably would have won. But then General Batista led a military coup and took over the government. Um, so it's sad on one hand because it ruined his chance for elected office, but it also created the situation for him to become a popular revolutionary. Um, people weren't happy with Batista, obviously. Like, it wasn't like he had some kind of populist movement. It was a military coup. So it actually further decreased people's faith in the government and institutions, which is great for some rebellious upstart like Fidel with a message that puts citizens first and tackles corrupt political leaders. Um, there was a story that Fidel used to tell where at this time he said he was out of work, broke, his marriage wasn't going well, and he's just lost. He doesn't know what to do. So that's when he decides he has to start a revolution, and he mm -hmm. plans to attack the military barracks in Moncada. Uh, beforehand, Fidel said even if the attack failed, it would be symbolic, and it did fail. Um, dozens of the attackers were killed in either the attack or later after having been taken prisoner and executed. Uh, Fidel was also captured, but he was spared after a Catholic archbishop with some connections intervened to help him. Um, Batista decided just not to uh, execute Fidel or not to lock him up for a very long time. Um, but yeah, Batista, you fucked up. Yeah, spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> um, Batista also ordered 10 men to be killed for every one of his soldiers killed in the attack. And this only made Fidel and his group seem more heroic after the media published photos of the young men that were killed as revenge. And there was a recurring pattern here. The Batista regime only had this one tool in their arsenal. Just be incredibly brutal. But all this did was embolden the revolutionaries and make even the politically inactive people more sympathetic to their cause. Um, so Fidel and his brother Raul were both sentenced to 15 years in prison for their roles in the attack. Um, Ward, did you want to do uh, your section on Batista here? Is this a good spot for you to do that? Um, yeah, sure. So I had a couple little things i was going to read a quote from jfk and um mm -hmm. a memo from the cia did you not um, the jfk quote <laughs> <laughs> just kidding so just covering like just 
knowing JFK and how he was with international <laughs> politics, um, you can take the take a grain of salt with this. Uh, quote, one of the most bloody and repressive dictatorships in the long history of Latin American repression. Uh, Batista murdered 20,000 Cubans in seven years, a greater proportion of the Cuban population than the proportion of Americans who died in both world wars. And he turned democratic Cuba into a complete police state, destroying every individual liberty. That's hmm. JFK's take. Yeah. Damn. So pretty fucking bad. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, so we got a CIA memo um, dated January 1963. Um, titled Political Murders in Cuba, Batista Era Compared with Castro Regime. Quote, it is estimated that roughly 20,000 politically inspired murders and deaths during revolutionary action occurred under Batista's last term in office. However, no accurate estimate is possible. Most of these deaths took place during 1957 and 1958 as Castro's revolutionary threat became progressively more potent and as the Batista regime sought to counter it with a campaign of terror. As regime-inspired terrorism mounted, anti-Batista groups engaged in counterterrorism against regime supporters, and by mid-1958, killings had become widespread in general throughout the country. The regime's campaign of terror got out of control, and the government in Havana probably had no clear idea of how many killings the police and armed forces were actually committing. Similarly, the Batista forces, uh, with by mid-1958, had the support of 80 to 90 percent of the population. The anti-Batista forces. Yeah, anti-Batista forces. 80 to 90%. Had little control over the acts of counterterrorism being committed against the pro-Batista elements throughout the country. The element- I was just curious. You said 20,000 under that last year, right? Yeah. 20,000 deaths. Do you think that that was more primarily deaths of revolutionaries during like battles and skirmishes or was do you think this was more him actively going after revolutionaries so if you let me finish it goes in okay okay yeah uh the estimate of 20 yeah the estimate of twenty thousand deaths for political reasons during the baptista era includes only a relatively small number killed in actual military encounters between the baptista castro forces damn Anti-Castro exile groups. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is, like, that's the only number they have. So it's, Mm. in reality, way more. Anti-Castro exile groups estimate that since Castro's coming to power in 1959, there have been nearly 2,500 executions. Some 800 executions have been publicly announced by the regime. There's no information to permit an accurate number of the executions, but it is known that there have been many more than those uh, publicly announced. In addition, there have been many, perhaps several hundred, anti-Castro resistance fighters killed by the militia and police in numerous scattered encounters, especially in the mountains off uh, La Villas province. In addition, there have been sporadic killings by anti-Castro forces of Castro's militiamen and officials. However, the large-scale campaign of murders of terrorism characteristic of the last years of Baptista regime have not occurred since the have occurred during the Castro regime. Yeah, we're going to get into in a little bit how um, how good Fidel is at like commanding his army of revolutionaries and how he's able to defeat the Batista regime. I mean, over and over again, we're just going to see Fidel is just such a Chad dude. It's, it's great. Um, so th- going back to um, Fidel and his brother Raul getting sentenced to uh, prison, 
They were sentenced to 15 years. Um, and it was here that Fidel did a lot of reading, including Marx and Lenin. Again, you fucked up, Batista. Did Lenin have Marx and Lenin in prison? Like, what are you doing? Yeah, seriously. And Fidel said, quote, what a terrific school this prison is. Here I can shape my view of the world and perfect the meaning of my life. Um, so he wrote his defense speech, which he called History Will Absolve Me. And he smuggled it out of prison to his wife a few pages at a time. Oh, what's up, Tony? Sorry. I just want to hold one thing up just because that sentence is, it, to us, it sounds like a hell of a sentence. But if you really think about what was going on in Cuba, really what he's implying there is he had more access to this literature in jail than he did out, out in the real world because Cuba was so limited in that, in that aspect. Like That is such a powerful statement if you truly understand how literary works were accessible in Cuba at that time. I just yeah. wanted to marinate. So on many that people didn't know how to read. Forty percent of the population was illiterate before Castro. Yeah, it's actually a really good point. I didn't think of that even when I was writing. I mean, Fidel himself, like I said, his parents were pretty well-off landowners, um, you know, sugarcane farmers. So he probably always had access to things. Yeah. But um, he could have just as well been influenced by people he was in prison with, you know, to read some leftist Marxist shit. Mm. Um, but yeah, it very much is true that I'm sure a lot of people had more access to stuff in prison than they did just outside of it because they were so poor and so illiterate. Um, anyway, okay, so yeah, he's writing his defense speech, History Will Absolve Me, smuggles it out of prison, and in it, he called for violent overthrow of the Batista regime, democratic elections, and he spoke about the inequality and poverty in Cuba. 20,000 copies were printed and distributed. Um, so Fidel and his brother were released after just under two years in prison. Batista, you're fucking up, dude. Like, just left <laughs> and right, man. I feel like he probably afterwards was like, no, you dumbass. I didn't say give him Marx and Ingalls. I said Trotsky and Bordega. Then he wouldn't have done <laughs> shit. <laughs> he wouldn't sit around in an armchair all day. <laughs> lasagna. <laughs> dude, I really want to know what that shit about, the, about Bordega eating lasagna is true. I know it's a meme, but I, I, I want to know if that's for real. Uh, I don't think it is. It's funny because like one of the first results you find whenever you look up Bordiga lasagna is the discussion between like Wikipedia source ciders, like <laughs> arguing about whether or not it's real. <laughs> I love I it. I mean, it just sounds too good to be true. But anyway, let's get back to Fidel. Sorry. Okay. So after getting released from prison at this point, Fidel is 29 and he goes to Mexico to continue organizing his revolutionary party. And he calls it the 26th of the July movement, which is the date of their attack on the barracks in Moncada. So it's to memorialize that. In 1956, they returned to Cuba on a yacht to begin their plans for revolution. But the Cuban military saw the ship and attacked, and they killed about half of them. And the newspapers reported that Castro was killed as well, but Fidel escaped, obviously. He hid in a sugarcane field for three days, and he got away. Scott Quick note, when we say yacht, that is because of just the dimensions and class of... But it wasn't a yeah, I don't yacht think it was a like you like, No, 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 no. And it was like only meant for like i think a dozen maybe 20 people mm -hmm. and they had like 80 people on board yeah yeah so he um after hiding in that sugarcane field and he gets away he went into the mountains with 17 other men including raul and a doctor from argentina named ernesto guevara also known as che <laughs> he'll come up again later too um, so their revolutionary exploits actually started getting favorable press in the New York Times. A writer named Herbert Matthews wrote about Fidel. He said, quote, here is quite a powerful man, six footer, olive skin with scraggly beard. He has the strong, he has strong ideas of liberty, democracy, and social justice. 
Maybe that was the first social justice warrior. I don't know if you guys know. (laughs) Um, CBS also made a documentary about the revolutionaries, including interviews with Fidel. Uh, In March, a student revolutionary group attempted to assassinate Batista and failed. Their leader was killed, and the 16th of July movement, or sorry, the 26th of July movement was hit hardest by the military in retribution for it. This again led to more sympathy for the revolutionaries as the citizens held marches for the young men that were killed by the government. So it's like they just keep doing this. They keep like responding, like I said, with more force and brutality, and it just makes people hate them more and love Fidel more. Um, But this is actually where his revolution really starts to take off, and Fidel now has a small army behind him. So Batista decides at this point to finally get rid of Fidel once and for all, and he sends 10,000 soldiers against the 300 rebels that are in the mountains. And in Fidel's words, their plan of attack was, or the plan of defense, I should say, was, quote, like ping pong. You hit them where they least expect it. So he's just like bouncing back and forth to where these different, you know, sections of the 10,000 soldiers are and just hitting them where they're not expecting it. And they just keep running around like madmen trying to get them and they can't do it. Um, So it was also around this time that the U.S. had stopped giving military assistance to the Batista regime because he was too brutal and the U.S. didn't want to be associated with him. And when I was writing this up, this reminds me of like, Something that I kind of wanted to point out. Um, some of the things that are like different about this time period and the situation that Castro was in compared to modern day movements. Um, and I think this is a major difference. The U.S. withdrawing support from a dictator because he's too brutal and allowing a left wing popular uprising to continue. Like we just would not see that in this day and age, I guess, because, you know, communism wasn't the threat or they didn't realize how big of a threat communism was like Soviet Union was around, obviously. But, you know. We will see later, like Cuba is the first country in Latin America, Latin American country to successfully stand up to the United States. And so they hadn't quite realized that the true extent of the threat yet. And but like, sorry, what did I want to say here? A lot of important American investors lost their shit. And that's what America cared about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, just reading about this, I was like, if this were today, Castro and every single one of those rebels would have been droned. They would have been like way before this point, too. Um, And like, you know, because reading about revolutionary movements and their leaders, obviously, one of the first things that you do is try to relate it to the current situation and find parallels to modern day people and organizations. Um, But what I find is that like whether it's Lenin robbing banks to fund his revolutionary movement or Fidel attacking a military base and then publishing a pamphlet from prison. Um, that's radicalizing the entire population of his country. Like, all I can think is like, oh, he definitely would have been shot already, or at the very least, like, locked up for life and in solitary confinement, probably yeah. in Guantanamo Bay, ironically enough. Like, um, Okay, so at this point, not only is the revolution becoming more popular, but the Cuban army is looking weaker all the time. So it seems like Fidel should be siding with the U.S. government now, since it's making it very clear that they don't support Batista. But Fidel is not stupid, and he has recognized for a long time that the U.S. is the source of Cuba's problems. And he also knows that this isn't some principled stance from the U.S. government. They're just doing whatever is convenient now that it's clear Batista is losing his grip on power in Cuba. Um, so Fidel said, quote, once this struggle is finished, I'll begin, my re- begin the real struggle in my life, the fight I will wage against the United States. I believe that is my true destiny. Oh, God, probably shouldn't have said that. <laughs> dude, he was like not shy about it at all, dude. <laughs> um, so in August 1958, the revolutionary forces left the mountains and they spread out over Cuba. Fidel sent Camilo Sinfuegos and Che Guevara to the west of the island. One of his rebel leaders, Hubert Matos, he'll, he's going to come up again later, so remember that name. Uh, he took control of the, of the city of Santiago de Cuba. And Che blew up an armored train in, in Santa Clara 
and took that city. Uh, Batista's army was pretty much in shambles after this. So on New Year's Day, 1959, Batista fled Cuba with 180 of his friends and $100 million. The next day, Fidel led his rebel soldiers from Santiago de Cuba to Havana, which is 600 miles, and he spoke at every stop along the way. But he's just doing like this march across the country with all his revolutionaries and like everybody is coming out to see him. Just like imagine a nationwide party, just an absolute blowout for the whole day. Yeah. And I think that brings Um, up another point. Like Castro did not overthrow the uh, Batista regime. Cuba overthrew the Batista regime. Yeah, that's something I wanted to touch on. And because I felt like we went through that part like kind of fast. Because like. They, like as, as soon as they established themselves in the mountains, like they were starting to resist military forces. But at the same time, they were sending out armed patrols to like local towns and villages to like try to recruit revolutionaries. And if not, at least create bridges with the local communities so they could garner support. Because yeah. if, they, if they didn't have the support of the Cuban people, they would not have succeeded in the revolution. Yeah. yeah. And Fidel makes that really clear. Like, there's a speech that I wanted to include here, but since we're doing the episode in this format now, I'm not going to put it in. But there's a speech where he's talking to hundreds of thousands of his, of his citizens, and he's telling them, you know, because it's right after this, and it's a, the next session I'm going to go to read, that where they start going after the previous Batista regime uh, supporters and, like, people who were, like, committing all the brutal acts of terror that the army was doing. Um, so they're going after these people, and, of course, the United States... You know, the press and everything is like, oh, this is some terrible, terrible, like brutal regime that Cuba, that uh, Castro is running. And it's like, no, this is like the act, the people having a revolution led by a populist um, for the working class and then going after the people that had been holding them down, like rightfully so. But of course, that's not how the U.S. is going to portray it. Oh, but yeah, it's so like I'm saying in the speech he's giving to all these people and he's saying like, did we stage a military coup? And they're all like, no, no, no. And he's like, did we have like a real uprising of a workers movement? And they're all like, yes, like people loved him. Like I can't emphasize enough how popular Fidel was. Yeah. It's kind of crazy with the Cuban revolution, like how many aspects of it relate to like Mao's thoughts on like protracted, the people's protracted warfare. Mm -hmm. And it's not like they read Mao. It's just something that they created out of necessity. Yeah. That just happened to align with what Mao wrote. And like, even Shea said that uh, guerrilla warfare is, the only the initial, is one of the initial phases of a war and will develop continuously until then. Through steady growth, the guerrilla army develops characteristics of a regular army. And it just, just showing, like, you got to build, build this army up. We have to do asymmetrical warfare against these massive military forces until we have our own military. And, like, alongside that and the armed propaganda that he was doing, um, Shea said... It is not always necessary to wait until all the revolutionary conditions exist. The insurrectional foco can be developed subject can develop subjective conditions based on existing objective conditions. Basically, we can create the revolution that is necessary. And that's what they did. They got 80, 90 percent of the support of the population of Cuba. Like. It was a people's uprising. Yeah. No, I mean, it's great to read about it. And like I was saying, when you try to compare it to like modern day, it's like if you tried to do anything that they did you would be arrested by the u.s police like you know I'm, i again mm-hmm. i got to compare everything to this country but like you would be arrested and locked up they throw away the key like immediately so i can sort of see why it doesn't happen this way here just sucks like socialism is literally illegal in the u.s um but going back so after the revolution and they overthrow batista people actually went out in huge numbers to go and pay their back taxes because they finally felt like the government wasn't corrupt and going to just give it to some cronies and that they would actually see some benefit from what they're paying. 
which is crazy to me. Like I had to, to note that down. Like imagine like you have a revolution. People are like, oh, I'm going to go pay my taxes now. Like I owe like eight years. I'm going to go pay those because I finally believe in this government that much. Like, <laughs> can you imagine? <laughs> All right. So there was an interim government in Cuba at this point and elections were scheduled to be held in a year and a half. And the interim government included all the various opposition parties, but Fidel and his movement were really running things. And one of the first acts of the new revolutionary government was to publicly put on trial and execute criminals from the Batista's government. And they executed more than 500 in the first three months. So based. Based. (laughs) So, of course, there was outcry from the media in other countries, like I said, in sympathy for the fascists, as usual. And they called it a bloodbath and made it seem like Castro was just as bad as Batista had been. Um, But Castro went on TV in response and he said, quote, when the young people would appear murdered in the streets with the chops of their heads, when the yards of the barracks would be full of cadavers, when our women were violated, when the children were murdered, when the police guards would go into the embassy to assassinate our people, no one made a campaign against Cuba. And so there was a chant that people would uh, say back then, which was uh, Patadon, which meant to the wall. People would literally like, just chant that in mass numbers, putting these uh, Batista guys up against the wall. It's so based. So Castro officially became the prime minister on February 16th, 1959. He went to the U.S. for two weeks on a goodwill tour, and he was asked by the American press about his potential ties to communism and all the communists in his government. And Fidel denied being a communist or any of his administration being communists. Clever. So here's a, here's a quote from Shea on land reforms that I just wanted to read real quick. The, uh, the first liberating revolutions never destroyed the large landowning powers that always constituted a reactionary force and upheld the principle of servitude on the land. In most countries, the large landholders realized they couldn't survive alone and promptly entered into alliances with the monopolies, the strongest and most, ruth- most ruthless oppressors of the Latin American peoples. U.S. capital arrived on the scene to exploit the virgin lands and later carried off unnoticed all the funds so, quote, generously given, plus several times the amount originally invested in the beneficiary country. Um, so then... I mentioned that because May 17th, 1959 is when the new Cuba, specifically the new agrarian reform law. So farms were seized from wealthy landowners and given to 200,000 peasants who had been farm workers themselves. But the first farm to be seized was Castro's parents' farm, and his mother never forgave him for it. <laughs> I know, right? That's why I said that'll come Sorry, up mom. later, that they own that sugar cane farm. <laughs> Sorry, mom, don't be a lib. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's like, there's a, uh, you, you brought all your friends with you, honey. What's going on? <laughs> but I mean, that oh, just shows like, like, oh, congratulations on the revolution. I'm so proud of you. Wait, my place? <laughs> oh, I didn't think you actually believed in this stuff you were saying. Like, you mean you're actually going to put it in practice starting with yourself and your own family? Like, um, so also remember Huber Matos, the guy who uh, took over Santiago de Cuba. So he resigns because he figures out that the revolution is communist. Um, I don't know why it took him so long, but he said <laughs> in, in March that year, he had found three articles of pro-Marxist propaganda in a magazine distributed to the rebel, rebel army. And he saw Shea and Raul Castro meeting with Communist Party leaders. And he later said in an interview, quote, so observing all that, I began to think there's a second plan being put in place here. And he resigned, telling Fidel, quote, you're destroying your own work. He's like... Like, oh, I figured out the secret plot of this communist revolution is that it's communists. Like, congrats, dude. Hell yeah, so, we're going to yeah. fight for the workers and get rid of all these capitalists. And then, uh, wait, what? Wait a minute. <laughs> wait a second. Which is basically uh, what 
Americans think of communism. Like they're all for every communist idea until you use the word communism. Yes, like, yeah, yeah. Like I should get paid more. Yeah, like my my work hour, I should have more vacation hours. What do you mean that's a communist policy? <laughs> um, look at them now, where it's like, oh, we get the COVID vaccine for free. Why aren't we getting like chemo and like yeah. insulin? Like other stuff that we need to live for free. Mm. And it's like, oh, you're getting there. Okay. You're, there. you're close. So Fidel had Matos arrested and he called him a traitor and ungrateful. Uh, Raul Castro wanted him executed and so did Shea, although Shea changed his mind shortly after. So Fidel sentenced him to 20 years in prison and he said he didn't want to create a martyr. But in response to, Mato- to Matos' arrest, a lot of moderates, aka liberals, in the government resigned or were let go. And some fled to the U.S., uh, others stayed and joined an opposition movement. And these are what we call counter-revolutionaries or reactionaries. This is what always happens. Or bitches. Oh, poo-hoo. <laughs> so we're now Raul Castro... <laughs> no, we're not. <laughs> so now Raul Castro is Minister of Defense, and Shea is head of the Central Bank, and Osvaldo oh. Dor- Dorticos was president of Cuba. Under the new government, rents were cut in half, prices of public services sharply dropped, New infrastructure projects were started, and they sent students into the mountains to teach the peasants how to read and write. And this is where Cuba starts to become friendly with the Soviet Union. So Cuba's relationship with the U.S. had been getting steadily worse, as the U.S. was sending diplomats to Cuba, and they were saying to Fidel, like, look, we know that American companies are, quote, overrepresented in Cuba, meaning Bell Telephone, the oil companies, the drug companies, the cement companies, and they would say, like, let's talk about this. And instead, Fidel would go out, and give these like eight hour speeches to hundreds of thousands, even up to a million, I think at one point, um, people and talk about the rich history of Cuba and how the United States had been oppressing them for so long and just riling up all his people against American imperialism. Nice. This is so, I know it's like such a Chad move. Like you have these diplomats of, from like the most powerful country in the world and like, come on, let's just like work something out with these companies. Like we'll make you rich. You know, they're offering him all kinds of shit. And he's like, actually, oh I'm going to go make this speech to a million people and make them hate you even more because you're doing this shit. Like, um, so in a speech, he, uh, sorry. Yeah, at this time, there was a Soviet politician, the deputy premier, who was visiting to unveil some kind of monument. And it was at the end of this visit that Castro signed an agreement for Cuba to trade sugar for Soviet oil. This set, of made, this set off major red flags for the U.S. government, since no other countries in Latin America had anything to do with the Soviet Union. So they see Cuba 90 miles off the coast of Florida, cozying up to the USSR, and they're like, this is bad, like, we're fucked. But basically the U.S. decided this, this meant that Castro had picked the Soviets over the U.S. and they were done trying to negotiate with him at this point. So They started flying March- actual red flags. And America's <laughs> like, that, that's a red flag right there. <laughs> I think I know one if I see one. I, I see one now. That's, that's definitely, I'm, I'm going to call the general. <laughs> In March 1960, Eisenhower gave the CIA the green light to go ahead and try to take down Castro. In June, the first shipment of Soviet oil arrived at Cuba, and Castro asked the American oil companies in Cuba to refine a million barrels of the Soviet crude oil, and they refused. So um, he nationalized the oil industry. Uh, Four days later, the U.S. threatened to cut back on Cuban sugar imports, so Fidel authorized the expropriation of all U.S. property in Cuba. (laughs) He's just like, like, yeah, you want to try? Like, (laughs) we'll, we'll, we'll take this on. Let's fucking do it. In a speech he gave to the UN that September, Castro said, quote, What choice did our revolutionary government have? To betray our people? Instead of being loyal to our people, should we have been loyal to the American monopolies that exploited our country? 
And he was also very like outwardly friendly at this time. There's like a bunch of pictures of him with Khrushchev. Have you ever seen the, the picture of Fidel and Khrushchev and they're like hugging and they're both smiling really big? This is where that came from. He was like visiting the UN at the same time as Khrushchev. And a month later is when Eisenhower first started the trade embargo with Cuba. And in January, uh, the U.S. cut all ties with Cuba entirely. And so this is when the Gusanos fleeing Cuba really picked up. They were like flocking to the United States at this point. And for anyone not familiar, Gusanos are the bourgeois families that had their land seized um, or people who were just afraid that they were going to have the land seized or whatever. This is where all the horror stories come from about Cuban communism. When you see news stories like where they interview people from Cuba who now live in Florida and they whine and cry about how mean old Fidel took all their grandfather's land and slaves and his harem of concubines and his child brides or whatever. (laughs) Those are all Gusanos. It translates to worms in English and it's fitting because, yeah, it means worms. Jesus Um, Christ. After the revolution, it had mostly been people who were friendly to the Batista regime that were immigrating to the U.S., but now it was anyone who had had their wealth seized and, you know, that they had built all the slave labor or anyone who was afraid that it was going to happen to them soon. So, of course, even more so now, it's to anybody who is like anti uh, Cuban revolution. Mm -hmm. Anybody who was opposed to it is a Cusano. Yeah, I'm actually like, I'd be surprised if there are still Gusanos left in Cuba at this point. But I guess, you know, probably new ones are born all the time. They get radicalized, you know, the wrong way while they're there. Um, So, of course, the CIA started training an army of ex-Cubans in Guatemala to invade Cuba. Kennedy had just come into office at this point. And, uh, you know, the the CIA lied to Kennedy, telling him that Cuba would would be an easy win and that the whole Cuba situation would be over quickly. And it would not. (laughs) they actually might have been right if they had gone through with their initial plan which included sending a lot of bombers to take out cuban airfields and other bases but it's ironic because kennedy was literally making a speech to the american to american people about talking about how the u.s would not involve itself in cuba and risk losing precious american troops and while he was doing that they were loading up these bombers and preparing the bay of pigs operation and kennedy realized you know it would be impossible to deny u.s involvement if they sent in this huge operation like it would just be very obvious that it was done by the U.S. So what he had them do was cut back on it. And they only sent six bombers. Um, they painted them as Cuban Air Force planes, and they attacked from Nicaragua. So they destroyed three Cuban planes, um, like real ones, and they killed seven civilians. And this was April 15th, 1961. And uh, in this attack, a 16-year-old boy was hit by the bombing, and he was injured badly enough that he knew he was dying. Like, his, his abdomen was, uh, like, split open. And he stuck his finger into his open wound and he wrote Fidel in blood on a door next to him. Holy shit. And the door, I know, dude. And the door was brought to Fidel to show him how loyal the people were to him. And it moved him. Like, it brought him to tears. Goosebumps. I know, right, dude? Um, So I wanted to talk for a second here about the articles. I'm going to write Biden. No, no. (laughs) You're not going to write Pelosi? Come on, buddy. Um, but so, like, the way that the articles and documentaries that I was, like, watching and reading to, you know, research this, the way that they frame this kind of stuff, um, it was, like, just after this bombing that Castro started openly saying that the Cuban Revolution was a socialist project. And the American sources, they talk about this as if he was doing this cynically, like, to suck up to the USSR and get their support fighting the U.S. Mm-hmm. But for everything else they say, they have, like, all these sources and events and firsthand accounts for what they're saying. But when it comes to talking about Castro's motives for what he's doing, they just 
assume the most cynical ulterior motives and they just say it. They say like, oh, he was so good at winning over the people with his charisma and these long speeches about how they were tackling U.S. imperialism and, you know, feeding all their citizens and giving them farms. And that put people in a trance and that's how he consolidated his power. Like they always frame it that way. They always say like, oh, Cuba or I mean, Castro, like lifted all these people in Cuba out of poverty and gave them literacy and you know, like health care that they never had before. And he did. And that's how he that's how he took all the power. It's like what he helped his people like what the fuck like what would you got words? Yeah. Yeah, no, I love that where it's like, oh, yeah, his long speeches were like all brainwashing and stuff. It was like, no, he did long speeches because like he had trying to, to explain like- policy to people. It's complicated. So it takes a long time. I'd rather have some like fucking politician or whatever up there explaining something for 12, 13 hours straight than like the fucking news headline and then like some article that doesn't actually cite anything that everybody gets nowadays in the news. Yeah. Instead, of, like, I want a, an actual explanation from the fucking guy, and that's as, what he did. As opposed to, listen here, Jack. Which one is Libya and Syria? <laughs> oh no, dude. Um, but no, I mean that's what really like made me angry about it, really, because it was like they'll in one sentence say like he made all these gains for his people, getting them fed and housed and employed and educated and all this stuff, and then they'll like they'll be like, oh, it was all part of his nefarious plan to make his people like him, so he could be an evil dictator that lifts his people <laughs> out of poverty, like menacingly. <laughs> Um, so here's Castro's speech declaring the socialist character of the Cuban Revolution. This was on April 16th, just the next day after that bombing. Um, let's see. Because what the imperialists cannot forgive us is that we are here. What the imperialists cannot forgive us is the dignity, integrity, courage, ideological firmness, the spirit of sacrifice, and the revolutionary spirit of the Cuban people. This is what they cannot forgive us, that we are right here under their noses, and that we have made a socialist revolution right under the very noses of the United States. And that we defend the socialist revolution with those rifles. And that we defend the, social, the socialist revolution with the courage with which our anti-aircraft gunners yesterday riddled the attacking planes with bullets. And that revolution, that revolution we do not defend with mercenaries. We defend that revolution with the men and women of the people. Comrades, workers, and peasants, this is the socialist and democratic revolution of the humble, with the humble, and for the humble. And for this revolution of the humble, by the humble, and for the humble, we are ready to give our lives. Workers and peasants, humble men and women of the homeland, do they swear to defend this revolution of the humble to the last drop of blood by the humble and for the humble? And then that was when the crowd all exclaimed, yes. And, you know, so he's at this point, he's also telling his army, like he knows that this is not over. It's not just going to be this one bombing. So he's telling his army that they need to be, be prepared for more attacks, any type of invasion that the U.S. might try. And the next day, April 17th, is the Bay of Pigs invasion. Um, and I say invasion with air quotes because the Gusanos got their asses handed to them. <laughs> So this was like all ex-Cubans. These were Cuban exiles. They had 1,400 Cuban exiles. Again, mostly people loyal to the Batista dictatorship, people who had had their slaves taken away, etc. And they invade at dawn, and Castro personally takes over commanding the defense of Cuba. Um, they crushed the invaders. They had like no chance whatsoever. The Cuban army attacked them from the air and the ground, and they surrendered in 72 hours. It was wow. over um, fairly quickly. So this is not only good that they defeated the attack, but... Castro cleverly uses this to his advantage politically. Uh, the Cuban people already don't like the United States, and then the U.S. tries this. So, you know, using Cubans that are already viewed as traitors, and this makes it easy for him to, uh, to label any counter-revolutionaries as traitors. And what usually happens to traitors? Hmm? <laughs> Wall. <laughs> so even the American liberal sources for this were saying that this was the strongest Cuban revolution the Cuban revolution had ever been up to this point. 
Um, and this is why we were saying like no other Latin American country had ever successfully stood up to the United States. And here is little Cuba so close by and they were able to do it with a brand new revolutionary government that had just overthrown their own dictatorship not that long ago. So it's just really impressive overall. Whoever says socialism doesn't work can get smacked with Fidel's dick. <laughs> and we have to leave that in because it's a live episode. Absolutely. All right. So seven months later in November, President Kennedy puts his brother Robert Kennedy, who was the attorney general at the time, in charge of Operation Mongoose, also known as the Cuban Project, which was an extensive campaign of terrorist attacks against civilians and covert operations. All because Castro humiliated, humiliated Kennedy with the Bay of Pigs. So RFK, he's not given any restrictions in going after Fidel. He has CIA agents doing economic infiltration and sabotage and committing terrorist attacks in Cuba. Um, so one quote here that I found is, uh, between April and September of 1960, the CIA smuggled into the country by land and sea 75 tons of explosives and weapons used to commit 110 acts of terrorism and sabotage, destroying economic and social facilities to sow uncertainty and chaos within Cuba. So pretty much the same stuff as Operation Gladio. Um, he also called in the government's mafia connections. Again, there were a lot of mafia bosses who were oh, really mad about their... Bot dropped. What happened? What? Bot oh. dropped out. Bot. Oh, that's weird. Ooh, let's check that. Do you know when it dropped? It just now. Okay. Oh, really? Like well, a second news, ago, yeah. I'm recording just in case we need the backup. Also. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I am as well. I guess I am going to have to do a little bit of editing now. Fuck. Um, let me just... Well, hopefully uh, you can get it up and then we just bottom them together. And put uh, one of these sounds. I do like that sound. Now recording. There we go. All right. Um, okay, so... So RFK, he's not given any restrictions in going after Fidel. He has CIA agents doing economic infiltration and sabotage and committing terrorist attacks in Cuba. Uh, one quote I have here is, between April and September of 1960, the CIA smuggled into the country by land and sea 75 tons of explosives and weapons used to commit 110 acts of terrorism and sabotage, destroying economic and social facilities to sow uncertainty and chaos within Cuba. Um, he also called in the government's mafia connections. That were still pissed about losing their property in Cuba. Like we said earlier, that these all these casinos and American property were seized. So that actually had a lot of ties to the mafia who controlled most of those casinos. So they were still pretty mad at Castro in general, and they jumped at the chance to uh, you know try to get rid of them. And this is where all the ridiculous assassination attempts were happening, with the like exploding cigars, the poison in his shoes to make him lose his hair, and the lady assassin that he seduced. Um, so I did want to take a, a sidebar here about Marita Lorenz, because that's uh, the assassin that he seduced. Um, there's some really interesting things that are going on with her story, because um, I wanted to look into her. I just wanted to look up who was the you know, assassin that he seduced, and her name came up, and I found a few articles in her Wikipedia page. Um, so the first article I found when I Googled her was a New York Post article, and the New York Post is pretty much trash as far as journalism goes, but this article was like particularly bad. Um, it was published two days after Fidel died in November 2016, and they describe how she and Castro first met in 1959 when she was 19, and he swept her off her feet. Um, so I'm going to quote a good amount of this article because there's a lot going on here, but then we'll get into some more stuff from like, some other sources. So she says, quote, meeting him, I was overcome with emotion. Um, as his hands touched me, heat went through my body. We made love that first day. My yearning was such that I was in pain. <laughs> so Marita's family was from New York. But her father was 
captain of a cruise ship, the cruise ship Berlin. And as a teenager, she traveled the world with him. So the day she met Castro, the Berlin had just pulled into the harbor off Havana. And Castro had just recently taken power. And after seeing the ship in his harbor, he and an armed band of 25 men sailed out in a small launch and boarded the vessel. Their on-ship love affair lasted three nights, according to Lorenz. But after her return to New York, Castro wanted more, and he sent a plane for her. And Castro was between wives at the time. This dude so. fucks. <laughs> <laughs> he did, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean so I, I saw a number of times in interviews and like articles and documentaries that Castro was very popular with the women, with the ladies. So, um, so this... This is where the New York Post article gets weird. So Marita said she became pregnant with Castro's child, but back in New York before giving birth, she was attacked and drugged, and the baby was stolen. Uh, the attack left her near death from septicemia, and she, well, she said, and she would only see her son Andre twice, she said, after begging Castro's permission. And so right there, I like, took a pause when I was reading the article because they make it sound like Castro had some henchmen drug this woman and remove her baby in some kind of like amateur surgery. Um, so then I did some more searching for Marita Lorenz, and her Wikipedia has some interesting things to say about it. But regarding this, inc- this incident with her baby, it says, She lived with Castro for several months and became pregnant. When Lorenz discovered she was pregnant, there was little doubt who the father was. In October 1959, at seven months along, Lorenz says she was given a glass of drugged milk and blacked out. When she woke up in a local doctor's office, the baby was nowhere to be found. And various stories have been floated over the years about what happened next, but none have been definitely confirmed. Um, Either the fetus was aborted, Lorenz suffered a miscarriage, or she gave birth to a healthy baby boy named Andre. But it says citation needed for any of those. So I don't know, like, which is true. Um, And then there's this more in-depth piece from Vanity Fair by Anne-Louise Bardak, who spent some time with Lorenz in 1993 to try to figure out what was fact and fiction, not only about this incident, but a lot of other claims Lorenz had made about U.S. intelligence operations and about meeting Lee Harvey Oswald and apparently seeing the planning of the Kennedy assassination. This is where I mean, like, her story gets really friggin' interesting. So, in that article, Bardak writes, uh, Left in her mother's will, according to Marita, were a letter imploring her daughter to get out of the spy game and a photograph of a boy named Andre, Marita's son with Fidel. Um, according to Marita, the note said, I did not tell you before about the boy because you, wouldn't have, you would have been sidetracked. Uh, Marita Lorenz is standing over her copying machine duplicating old news clippings while expostulating on how she almost paid with her life for testifying at the House hearings. First, she says, were the phone and mail threats, followed by a suspicious fire in her Yorkville apartment, a poisoning, a pistol whipping, and a hit-and-run accident involving her son. In order to escape, she moved her family to a small farmhouse in Darien, Connecticut, which she bought with her book advance. Within six months, she says, the house was raked with, with automatic gunfire. After her daughter Monica was hospitalized with an inexplicable illness, Lorenz was close to complete breakdown. Some observers suggest, however, that any harassment she suffered had more to do with her career of befriending and then informing on various lowlifes who were frequently her lovers. Um, Earlier in 1981, Lorenz marched into the Cuban mission on Lexington Avenue in New York City. Knowing the building was under continuous surveillance by the FBI and a national security agency, Lorenz didn't dare speak. Instead, she wrote a long note. She said, quote, I need help. There is no justice for me. They are going to kill me and my children. And Lorenz said later, quote, I pleaded for help. I showed them the photos of me and Fidel so that they would know who I was. And that night, she says, two Cuban bodyguards stationed themselves outside Monica's room in a New York hospital and stayed with her until her release. 
Um, emboldened, Lorenz returned to the mission, requesting a visa to Havana. Um, I'd write these notes, she says, they would read them, and then I'd burn them with my cigarette lighter. In September 1981, she boarded a chartered plane out of Miami and flew into Havana. She was met by soldiers who escorted her into a, quote, Czechoslovakian Cadillac to Fidel's house. Um, one of the 15 houses Lorenz says he has scattered about Havana. This one was called Casa Immigración. It's the one with the satellite dish. I was greeted by two barbudos, which means bearded ones, as Castro's soldiers were known. And they showed me to my room, a nice big room with a terrace around it, and I was nervous as hell. She was also buzzing, having taken three escatrol pills, oh, which are amphetamines, before she oh, left God. Miami. <laughs> and she goes, I'm going into hell, she had told her doctor. I'll need it. Might as well get so lit. <laughs> It's crazy. Like she, it's so weird because so many things about her story are conflicting, but even from her own accounts, like there's, it's like, she's describing Cuba as hell and saying she's going to have this traumatic experience. But at the same time, she's like super excited to see Fidel and like still in love with him, which we'll get into in a little bit. So finally the boss, an old guy with a limp who lost a leg at the Bay of Pigs came back, she says, and said, Commandante will see you now. And the door opens and Fidel lets it slam against the wall. He always did that. It's so crude. She sighs. And the first thing that struck me was that he's gray, his beard, and he's walking back and forth looking at me. Then he said, welcome back, my little assassin. I said, that wasn't nice. You're still alive. You owe me. And it started like that. They bantered in Spanish and English. And he's totally fluent in English, In English, she says. He plays dumb when he wants to with American reporters, which is hilarious to me. <laughs> um, and he says, you do well, a little trolling. <laughs> and so he says, well, did you come back to kill me? He asked, did you run out of dictators? Are you still working for the CIA? And she said, Fidel, be glad it was me and not somebody else because you would have been dead. And I said, and she said, I still love you. I did not know what else. I didn't know what else to say, she said. And then she started to cry. She said, I want to see the boy. I know he's alive. And Castro agree, agreed, she claims, with one provision, that she would never try to take the boy to the United States. And then Andre came in and she goes, I just looked and said, my God, it's, it's alive. It's real. My God, it's mine. It's got my mouth, my eyes. Um, oh God, it's got Fidel's nose. The first thing I noticed was his white, <laughs> white skin and Fidel's curly hair. And I started to cry. He speaks oh, English wait, too. Wait, wait, wait. Lost the bot again. Lost the bot again. I think it's we're weird. just going to abandon the bot. Fuck the bot. It's weird. We'll just use uh, Sterling. We'll use your recording. It's fine. That fucking bot. Um, let's see. Uh, okay, so apparently she says he speaks English too. He's a doctor, a pediatrician. It's nice, Fidel. You did a beautiful job, she said to him. And after an hour and a half, she says, father and son left. I never knew when the hell he was going to walk in. I couldn't believe it after all those years. So I take a shower real quick. The water was lukewarm. The towels were shit. Russian, like dish towels. And she said, I believed he would come back more out of curiosity. And five hours later, she says, Castro returned. It was almost dawn. We made love. She howls with laughter. Can you believe that? <laughs> this is all just like the transcript from her interview with uh, Anne Louise Bardak. Um, in the morning, Lorenz says she had breakfast with her son. If you want to call it breakfast, she snorts. It was like spam, dog food. And forget the coffee. No more Cuban coffee. It comes from Nicaragua. It's like brown water. So she's like, at the same time, again, just romanticizing Fidel, so in love with this dude, but it has to like trash communism. I don't think it's a coincidence that she works for the CIA. You know, she has mm -hmm. to like talk about communism as if, oh, they don't have stuff. They don't have cool things. They don't have like <laughs> stuff that I like. Okay, so um, Nicaraguan coffee is excellent. I'm sure it's. I'm sure it's yeah, great. it's fantastic. <laughs> um, so let's see. 
Valerie Lorenz, who drove her sister to the Miami airport, says the first time she ever heard about a son with Fidel was when she picked up Marita on her return. She was in a state of shock, she says. She went on and on about her kid. He's alive. He's alive. She was sort of hysterical. She talked about meeting this old couple who had raised him. However, Lorenz returned without a single photograph, letter, or memento of her alleged son. And asked to produce either the photograph or the letter left by her mother, she balks, finding endless excuses. Most damning is her own account in her unpublished biography describing her stay in Roosevelt Hospital upon her return from Havana in 1959. She said, I saw the doctor look at the x-rays and say, quote, Jesus Christ, they left half of the baby in there. And I thought I would go crazy. My mother told me that they had taken 22 bones out, including the entire rib cage. I cannot think about it without knowing how old the baby would be to this day. Um, so here they're making it seem like it was, you know, the case that she had an abortion or a miscarriage of some kind. Um, still, there is the slim possibility that she adopted a child, as she told the FBI in 1959. However, the most compelling argument for the love child story comes from the fact that the Cubans have allowed Lorenz to visit Havana on two occasions, in 1981 and again in 1988, as documented on her passport. Why, one wonders, would the Cubans, i.e. Castro, grant a visa to an admitted assassin unless there was a compelling personal reason? So desperate is Lorenz to prove her claim of having had Castro's child that she offers me what looks like an FBI report in order to verify her story. However, misspelling, misspellings, uncharacteristic language, and the lack of an FBI file a file number, betrayed the document as a fraud. Now going back to the New York Post article again. So even in Roosevelt Hospital, recovering from the attack that stole her baby, the CIA, quote, worked on her nonstop, recruiting her to return to Castro's bedroom and kill him. Weak, helpless, confused, robotic, she returned to Cuba working for the CIA. Their aim, to do him in. Her aim, she said, to again see Fidel. And the last line in the Post article uh, was, was, quote, she did. He hugged me, rolled over on top of me, and we again made love. So, <laughs> this dude I fucks. Mean, he totally fucks. Is what you're gathering. <laughs> yeah, I mean, aside from the more important point that Fidel fucks, but <laughs> what I'm gathering from this is it seems like if anybody had her attacked, it was probably the CIA because they were right there in her hospital room after she had been attacked and everything, and then already trying to recruit her to go back after Fidel. So it's like. I don't know. It seems just like a really weird thing that I couldn't get like a clear picture on, but I'm always, you know, willing to blame the CIA. And so. even even to take like the complete opposite uh, theory, is it that crazy for Fidel to know that this CIA woman in the United States that is pregnant with his child and what the government will do to him, like? threaten his child that they would then have access to is it really that absurd for him to more or less steal his child back over here i mean look yeah. stealing a child from mother terrible but we know what the u.s would have done if they had access to fidel's child and this woman was a cia agent like i'm not saying that even if that's what happened that that was okay i'm just saying is it that crazy for him to have done it yeah, I mean, I don't know. That might get I, me canceled too. But uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying, I feel like almost any world leader, if put in that position, may take that action. I mean, they literally collect the president's poop, like the <laughs> the American president. Like every time yep. the president is not at the White House, they collect it so that nobody else can like, I don't know, espionage, like steal it, and then like find out that like. I don't know Joe Biden has some kind of disease they can exploit for their own personal gain. You know what I mean? So yeah, like it wouldn't surprise me at all. Even if it's like somebody else in his government 
went after this woman yeah. and like stole her child from her or something because they didn't want some kind of bargaining chip to be used against Fidel. But I don't know it just still seems more likely to me that it was the CIA yeah, going after yeah. this woman because she had a son with Fidel that she was supposed to assassinate. Like, yeah, but JFK wasn't then, sending his kids to Cuba. Did did he even have kids? I don't. Know. Uh, I don't think I'm so. Sure, he didn't. Right? Did he? Yeah, there's a little uh, little guy who was like saluting at his funeral. Okay. Is that uh, JFK Jr.? Yeah, because that's who everybody thinks is the QAnon guy, is JFK Jr. I oh, think he's still alive. That's right. That's right. Um, anyway, but getting to JFK, that's good that you brought him up because that's the last thing I wanted to touch on when it comes to Marita Lorenz. Um, so in 1977, Lorenz told Paul Meskill of the New York Daily News that she met Oswald in the fall of 1963 at an Operation 40 safe house in the Little Havana section of Miami. According to Lorenz, she met him again before the Kennedy assassination in 1963 in the house of Orlando Bosch, Pedro Luis Diaz Lanz, and two other Cubans present. She said the men studied Dallas street maps and that she suspected they were planning on raiding an arsenal. Lorenz said that she joined the men traveling to Dallas in two cars carrying, quote, rifles and scopes, but flew back to Miami the day after they arrived. In response to her allegations, Sturgis said that he did not recall ever meeting Oswald and reiterated his previous denials of being involved in a conspiracy to kill Kennedy. In an interview with Steve Dunleavy of the New York Post, he said that he believed communist agents had pressured Lorenz into making the accusations against him. Lorenz testified about this Kennedy assassination plot before the House Select Committee on Assassinations. Her testimony was investigated by the political committee and said to be unreliable. Um, in February 1985, Attorney Mark Lane read a deposition that Lorenz provided in E. Howard Hunt's libel suit against the Liberty, Lobby, the Liberty Lobby's tabloid, The Spotlight. Uh, Lorenz lived in New York City at the time, however. Lane read the, de the deposition in court, stating that Lorenz was, quote, afraid to come to Miami. The deposition reiterated allegations similar to those she provided to the HSCA, and Lorenz said she met Oswald in, in Miami in the early 1960s, and that in November 1963, Sturgis asked her to come to Dallas with him and Oswald to act as a decoy. Her statement said that she, Oswald, and seven anti-Castro Cubans transported weapons to Dallas in two cars shortly before November 22, 1963. Lorenz claimed that Hunt came to their Dallas motel room and provided Sturgis with an envelope filled with cash. According to one account, this testimony became the, quote, centerpiece for Lane's 1991 book, Plausible Denial. In 1993, Lorenz was interviewed by Vanity Fair writer Anne Louise Bardock, who described her as, quote, a patron saint of conspiracy buffs. Bardock wrote, at least half of her story is readily documented by the accounts of others and FBI memorandum, and the other half lacks any corroboration at times, flies in the face of, exist of existing evidence. And then, um, let's see. Uh, I did, there was another section just on her Wikipedia page that I just took one sentence from, but the section was called Work for the FBI, um, as, as, you know, talking about Marita Lorenz. In 1970, she married the manager of an apartment building in New York. The two worked for the FBI spying on the Eastern Bloc, on Eastern Bloc UN diplomats living in the building. So she's like, you know, way deep in U.S. intelligence. She's working for the CIA and the FBI at different points, spying on, you know, communist diplomats. So, again, it's just very tough to tell, like, which parts of her story are real. Um, but it definitely sheds a lot of light, or at least sort of leads you in the direction of thinking that there was some... I mean, that is the common theory about the Kennedy assassination, right? Is that it was like the mafia and the CIA working together to take him out because he was damaging both of their causes. So anyway, um, this could be like the last thing that we tackle for the night. I want to talk just a little bit about uh, Fidel Castro and some of the 636 failed assass assassination attempts. 
Um, How many? From what I can tell, 636, I think, is the number. God. Um, I saw it on a website. There's a section about this guy, Fabian Escalante. So Fabian Escalante was the head of the Cuban Secret Service at the height of the attempts by the CIA and an increasingly desperate exile community to assassinate Castro. Escalante, who retired in 1996, recounted the thoughts in his book, Executive Action, 634 Ways to Kill Castro, which was the subject of a 2007 Channel 4, uh, sorry, a 2007 Channel 4 film of almost the same name, 638 Ways to Kill Castro. So we've got 634, 636, 638. I'm just going to go right in the middle and say 636. Does his memoir so, start with him like waking up at Castro's bedside after a long <laughs> night? <laughs> He's being um, little spooned by Castro. Just <laughs> every morning he wakes up. Okay. All right. Time to, time to go to work. I mean, I will say, like, when it comes to these quote-unquote failed attempts, it seems like a lot of them, I don't know what the majority of them are, because, again, I didn't read through all 600 plus, um, but it seems like a lot of them were things that the CIA came up with but then didn't go through with. Not that they tried and then they failed. Um, so I don't know really why sense. it gets that reputation for being... it. Yeah, that seems a lot more plausible yeah, that, than that they just tried this many times and failed. Like it shouldn't be that hard yeah. to kill somebody, especially if the fucking CIA. Like, yeah. yeah, I never looked into it like too much, but I always wondered was like it actually like that many attempts or was it like attempts and plans? Yeah. Um, so That's this is what it seems like. This is an NBC article published three days after Castro died called Fidel Castro, the CIA's seven most bizarre assassination attempts. Um, so number one is the exploding cigar but it's not actually an exploding cigar at all. Uh, so from the article, just a year after Castro seized power, the agency spiked the cigars with a botulism toxin strong enough to kill anybody who put one in their mouth. The cigars were delivered to a quote, an, an unidentified person in 1961, according to the subcommittee, but it's unclear what happened to them after that. So they never got to Fidel, luckily. So this is like, you know, botulism, for anybody who's unfamiliar, like botulism is super toxic. Like they warned us about this. I remember hearing about this in school. Like if you ever see like a, a can that's like bulging out of the sides, um, it's likely that that can, that can of food has botulism in it. And if you were to get even like a little bit of it in your mouth, if you just had a taste of botulism, it would kill you. So they loaded up the cigar, this box of cigars with botulism. Was this like a, a real thing people should be worried about? Or was this like when everyone thought they were going to get anthrax in the mail? No, I mean, botulism is a real thing. It's, it's rare. Like, you'd really have yeah. to have a, like, I think you have to have a can, like a can of food that's damaged in a certain way. Um, I don't know. My mom always warned me about this, too. Yeah, I'm just saying, a, is, it so, is it like, you know, just everyone was crazy because a few people got anthrax in the mail, so everyone thought it was going to happen to them, and this just happened to a few people, and they all panicked? Or were people, like, legitimately putting a lot of this shit in cans to where you may actually find it? Well, no. The it's, CDC it's, website is... And food is the most common cause of uh, botulism. Yeah. Oh, so it, it develops inside of it. It's not yeah, like a it's poisoning. Not like something that, gotcha. No. It can naturally occur. Or like naturally another one is like, um, I don't know if it's called alpha or afla, but it's like an alpha toxin. Um, if you have peanut butter that goes bad, it forms that. It forms like an alpha or afla toxin, and that will kill you like with very little bit. Like just a small amount will just oh, wow. kill you dead. Yeah. So there is like certain food items and things like that, that and botulism is one of them. And so the CIA knows that this like this um, odorless, like tasteless poison can just kill them if they put it on cigars, but they never got to him. So that was number one. Uh, two in this article is the reluctant Cuban. Uh, so months earlier at the end of president Dwight Eisenhower's term, the CIA used a series of middlemen to enlist two gangsters to help with Castro's removal. 
The agency was willing to pay $150,000, at least $1.2 million in today's money, according to the church committee's report. These mobsters were Sam Giancana, the boss of the Chicago mob, and Santos Traficant, the head of the mob's Cuban operations. Both of them were members of the FBI's 10 most wanted list. I, I, always, I think that's particularly funny. Like They go to these guys who are on their top 10 most wanted list to ask him to help assassinate this other guy who's like, you know, democratically chosen, like, you know, whatever. Sovereign government. I like to think JFK got assassinated by the CIA because of like a misinterpretation. Like he sent a memo to the CIA and said, kill that fucker who's responsible for the Bay of Pigs going sideways. Like, oh yeah, no problem. Got him, boss. I have heard the theory that like Lee Harvey Oswald was supposed to miss. Like, and he just like fucked up. Like he was supposed to like almost assassinate him. And that was going to be used for like all kinds of expansion of government power. Like, cause you know, you have an assassination attempt on a president. You can do anything you want. People are going to be scared. Um, okay. So Giancana suggested that poison pills were more reliable than guns. So the CIA provided six pills of quote, highly lethal content to a cash strapped Cuban official uh, who had access to Castro the subcommittee said. However, after successful, after several unsuccessful attempts, the Cuban got cold, got cold feet and the plan was abandoned. So again, like this is just like an, one that he kind of abandoned that just didn't go through with it. Um, this was a funny one. They called number three, the painted seashell. So intelligence officials thought they could use Castro's love of scuba diving to topple him. They planned to hide explosives in a, inside a large seashell and paint it with exotic colors to lure the attention oh. of the ocean loving. Oh God, it's so stupid. Like what um, are they just trying their hardest not to succeed? Like what is the worst assassination attempt we could come up with? All right, well, uh, to, to, the, to their credit, the next line in the article was, like many others, this idea was, quote, discarded as impractical, according to the committee's report. So they're coming up with, like, stupid ideas, and that's what I think is funniest about this. Like, I thought that the CIA, before doing all this research, I thought the CIA literally tried over 600 times, and it seems like they came up with 600 different, you know, Looney Tunes kind of ways to assassinate <laughs> him, and they actually followed through with a few, and then those few didn't work, so... How many guys were kicked out of the draft room for being like, why don't we just get like a sniper and like just shoot him and say, no, 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 like no, that's meme, not nearly as creative as like we need. Like the meme where yeah. the guy gets thrown out the window. <laughs> yeah. What if we shoot him? <laughs> it seems so simple. No, uh, give, okay, give so me that, four, give me, hand me that seashell. I got an idea. Number four. Hey, was really good with paint. Who's really good with paint? I just said Kyle. Oh, yeah. Kyle's really that would, good that would be a CIA agent name. <laughs> so number four is the contaminated diving suit. Uh, at that same year, the CIA planted to contaminate one of Castro's diving suits with a fungus that would produce a chronic and debilitating skin disease. The diving suit, as well as an infective breathing apparatus, was meant to be given to Castro by the American lawyer James Donovan, who had been involved in hostage negotiations with the Cuban leader. This, this plan was abandoned after Donovan gave Castro a different suit. Uh, Richard Helms, who would become CIA director, later called the plan, quote, cockeyed and said the suit never left the laboratory. So, again, some conflicting information there. Like, did he actually leave? The, like, did the suit leave the laboratory and he just chickened out at the last minute or did it? Did they just abandon this one as well? I don't know. Wait, no, wait, that doesn't sound like abandoned at all to me. It says like the plan failed after he gave the wrong suit to him. Right. Like, he just fucked I, up and gave him the wrong suit. And that's why it seems to me like Richard Helms, who became the CIA director, when he says the plane was cockeyed and that the suit never left the laboratory, it seems like he's trying to just save face, right? Like, yeah, no, it failed. That one, I'm taking that one as a fail. Uh, number five in that article, they talked about Marita Lorenz. Um, 
the only thing I'll take from that article, since we already talked about her at length, um, they, they say she was meant to give him botulism pills. Again, they're trying with the botulism, uh, but she chickened out. And they do include this quote from her, which I thought was great. She says, quote, he leaned over, pulled out his 45 and handed it to me. She recounted. He didn't even flinch. And he said, you can't kill me. Nobody can kill me. And he kind of smiled and chewed on his cigar. And she says, I felt deflated. He was so sure of me. He just grabbed me. We made love. <laughs> this is all he does, dude. This dude fucks. <laughs> Look, here's the 45. Or. <laughs> um, so number six is the poisoned pen. Another CIA. You want the, you want the 45 was... or the nine? Like. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrible. Um, another CIA attempt that was straight out of James Bond was its plan to kill Castro using a hypodermic needle concealed within a pen. The needle would, would be so fine that, quote, the victim would not notice its insertion, according to the church committee. Why? It's, Why? What? <laughs> uh, I mean, you guys all, all know about the heart attack gun, right? Yeah. I mean, I feel like, okay, for anybody who's unfamiliar, if our listeners don't know, like this has been proven to be a fact is that the CIA has this heart attack gun and what it shoots is a tiny little ice pellet. Um, it's like needle like that will penetrate the skin of whoever you shoot it at. And in it is a, a toxin that's in like shellfish and you know, people who are allergic to shellfish know what it does, but this is like a concentrated version of whatever that is that people are allergic to, to the point that even if you're not a shellfish allergic person, it'll cause you to have a heart attack. And they put it in an ice pellet so that it penetrates the person's skin, delivers this poison, and then melts. And then there's like no trace of this ever having happened to them, except for like maybe a, a tiny, like very, like almost imper imperceptibly small red mark on their skin, which would go away after they die anyway. So there's, it's just untraceable. So again, just a heart attack gun. It's pretty sounds, scary shit. Sounds like freedom to me, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> so, um... Yeah, so the, the needle would be so fine that the victim would not notice its insertion, according to the church committee. Its report said the needle was to be rigged with poison and injected into Castro by a, quote, highly placed Cuban official who was in discussions with the CIA. However, the Cuban official, quote, did not think much of the device and complained that surely the CIA could come up with something more sophisticated than that, the committee's report said. Uh, the, the official also suffered bad timing. He was offered the pen on November 27, 22, 1963, the date of John F. Kennedy's assassination. The event saw the agency withdraw support of the attempt on Castro's life, and the official never took the pen to Cuba. And then the last okay, one... Come up with seven. something more sophisticated. Bring, bring that shell guy back in. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the psychedelic speech is what they called number seven. And they say not all of, of the attempts were on Castro's life. America's intelligence services initially tried other methods to undermine the leader's public image as a charismatic strongman. In 1960, the CIA planned to sabotage Castro's speeches by spraying his broadcasting studio with a chemical that would make him suffer similar hallucinations to LSD. Other plots included spiking the dictator's cigars with a chemical that would disorient him, hoping he would smoke one before delivering one of his marathon oratory performances. They also tried dusting his shoes with thallium salts, which would have made Castro's iconic beard fall out. Uh, like the hundreds of other plots against Castro, all failed. The LSD-like substance was abandoned because it was too unstable. The cigars were never smoked and Castro canceled the overseas trip that would have given the spooks the opportunity to dust his shoes. So. And then, and then number eight, the one they actually went with, was the theory that if the CIA were to assassinate JFK, that Castro would, in pure excitement, just have a heart attack and, and, and die. 
It sounded, uh, all right. It, it, was, it was a better joke in my head. It's all right. That was good. <laughs> um, but actually, I want to leave it there. Um, we'll stop there. And then next week, I think, is when we will start to get into more on Shay. Because uh, I don't have enough of a section on yeah. him. I want to do some more in the notes about him. Because he's kind of an important figure. I feel like a lot of people like to hear about Shay and let's talk about him. So, um, unless you guys have anything else to add, we can uh, leave it there. A couple things. Um, one, just because... It's kind of a touchy thing, especially when there are arguments of with any revolution. Sorry, let me let me back up. With any revolution, with anything, there's always uh, unfair casualties, and there are grievances that people can have that are justified, like even within the revolution. But to try to paint Castro as just some lunatic, murderous person because he was part of this revolution that was really more Cuba than even him. It's crazy to me. I mean, I think about like, you know, down here in the South uh, where I live in Georgia, I almost guaranteeably know people whose relatives probably fought in the civil war against the North to defend slavery, to like keep the South's right to own slaves on their plantations. And they don't run around and talk about, Oh, you know, you, you're just, it's easy for you to say because your family, you know, didn't have a plantation before the before the Civil War. It's like, no, that that'd be crazy to say. Like we've been brainwashed with propaganda to to make us think that these kind of arguments make sense. These counter revolutionary theories. I mean, how many times have you ever heard a fucking Russian say, "I lost family," you know, during the October Revolution? You know, the the czars were bad, but they weren't like Lenin. Like no one fucking believes that. That's fucking stupid. It, your grievance isn't with Castro. Your grievance is with imperialism because it webs itself so deeply into a culture and into a country that there's no clean way to break it. So, yeah, there are losses of lives that are true tragedies that are unfair. You're totally justified in feeling, but that's imperialism. That's how it's so protected. It's got this shell of that culture's family that there's no way to break through that shell without hurting innocent lives. And that, I mean, I just, you can be critical w without completely missing the whole fucking point without missing that. Yeah. What about the innocent lives on the other side that lost their lives to actually do something better for their country? Yeah. That, that's, that's just kind of my point on that. And I, I I'm not trying to, inflame either side of the argument i think both sides could do better to to understand the loss the other side suffered and i think both sides should understand that that's that's imperialism that's the structure that existed before the revolution that caused this issue i think and or importantly i just changed t-shirts to 19 dollars a piece so Fucking grab them shits. <laughs> Go to turn dash leftist dash podcast dot myshopify.com or go to any of our social medias and go to the uh, link tree. T-shirts are now just $19 plus shipping. Um, got a few to send out. And then once we get these moved, we have the trickle down economics with the billionaire heads rolling uh -huh, down yeah, the, the guillotines. So we, we just want to move the, this last batch we have before we get a pile of new shirts. So if you've been thinking about getting one, now's the best time to get one. 
Um, huge shout out to all of our Patreons. I mean, we, we have people like literally just signing up for $20 a month. Like, I don't even know why you're doing that. You fucking rule. Like, there's no expectation. There's no expectation. Back on of schedule. That. Start pumping out two a week. No kidding, man. Like, I just want to say you, you guys fucking are awesome. We're so appreciative of that. We're, we've, I'm sure you finally noticed we've finally gotten to our premium episodes. If you're wa- listening to the regular episodes and you notice there's some holes in them now, that's because they're on the premium side. Uh, we have an RSS feed tied to the Patreon, so you can get that and add it to your favorite podcast listening app, and you can keep track of it the same way you keep track of the other one, the main podcasts. Um, that's everything I want to touch on. I did want to say real quick, like you made an interesting point because you compared like the Cuban Revolution to like the American Civil War, and say how like you know nobody says like oh my family is so much worse off after the American Civil War, you know, because we don't have our plantations anymore. Yeah. It's like, what's funny to me is that they actually do call them plantations in Cuba as well. Like, it's not yes. even like it's a different word. Like, it should be a very one-to-one comparison that people should easily be able to see. And again, you're right. You can criticize. Like, you could say, like, yeah, you know, it does probably suck for those families who had their wealth and their land taken away. And that's not perfect. Like, ideally, in a perfect revolution, yeah. it, wouldn't necess- it wouldn't be necessary to do that. But you yeah. do have to have some kind of way of redressing the grievances and like the the wrongs that were done to these people who were forced to work on these sugar plantations for little to no money like often in literal slave labor yeah and it's like what else do you even do in that situation like i know it sucks to you know deprive these people and you know they may not necessarily have personally done anything wrong like of course there probably could have been some sugar farm owners who were nice to their employees and paid them well and treated them well or whatever and they probably got their land seized as well. So it's not perfect. And you can yeah. genuinely criticize it. But when you do it in the cynical way where you pretend that Castro was some kind of evil dictator and he was just doing all these things cynically to win over the hearts and minds of his people so that he could consolidate power. It's like, no, he actually was objectively helping people. Like he materially yeah. raised their circumstances. And there's no denying that. So, yeah, I mean, criticize, but criticize honestly. Yeah, that's exactly those are the words I always use is criticize honestly. You can be honest about your criticisms. And it's like, with there are undoubtedly Cubans that before the revolution were completely against slavery and completely against, you know, exploitation of, of some of the workforce and probably either uh, worked their land themselves completely honestly or treated their employees fantastic that probably still lost their land during the revolution. And that fucking sucks. And that's kind of like the point you were saying, like it's not perfect. And there's definitely some unfair losses, but that's because of the structure. You can't pick favorites. If you do some, if, if it gets so bad to where you have fucking slavery in your country, the table's going to get flipped and not everyone was slave owners, but your, your fucking enemy was not the, peasants that finally got fed up with it and flipped the fucking table like some of these families had to flee and then they ended up living in impoverished conditions in the u.s you should understand that's what your people were living like every fucking day but 10 100 times worse conditions you should feel that poverty and understand why they they rose up and they revolted against the the fucking feudal lords of your country and maybe you or maybe your descendants were not feudal lords and, and you missed out and maybe today you'd be doing fucking amazing and you'd have it made. But you having it made, how many people would that mean are still 
fucking illiterate and still impoverished and still fucking serfs. Yeah. Yeah. Perfection is not in my criteria for a revolution that I support. You know, people are, they're humans. You know, it's the humans involved in a revolution. Mistakes will be made. But look at all the material conditions, like improvements in material conditions that have come out of it. Like, we're not just going unapologetic, like, yeah, everything was good. No, no, no. But, like, if you just look at the net gains, it's. Absolutely. We can critique when necessary. Some, uh, but, yellow Parenti quotes next time in the next episode. Yeah, dude, we got to. I was about to say, just like, look up, listen to Parenti on Cuba. Yeah. The revolution that feeds the children is the revolution that gets my support. Exactly. Hell, fuck Boom. Yeah. I mean, he, yeah, he always says it best. Yeah. Okay, so we'll wrap it up there. Blindly, not unapologetically. I guess my support. Uh, we'll do some plugs. Ward, go ahead and uh, plug your Instagram. Yeah, I got two. Uh, at Ward Lolly, W-A-R-D-L-A-W-L-E-Y. And at Millennial Leftist, common spelling. Oh, yeah. Sterling, want to plug the Twitter? Turn left pod. Get it. Hell yeah, baby. And uh, for Jaron and Cosper, I'll plug Jaron's website. That's J-A-R-O-N. P-E-A-R-L-M-A-N dot com. And Cosper, their Twitch is twitch.tv slash C-O-S-P-E-R underscore. And uh, for everything else, yeah, check out the link tree slash turn leftist. You can join us on the Patreon. We do have one premium episode now in the feed. It's and so good. Again, you know, I just, just listened to it. Oh my God. I had, I had such a good time listening to you and Jaron talk about uh, Israel. and it, God, he knows so much of the history. Oh man, it was... Yeah, dude. I, I truly yeah, I even said a couple things. <laughs> <laughs> it almost makes me angry. Like the amount of work I put into writing these notes and doing research for this. And then Jaron just shows up and he like just has just as much good stuff to say. Just like, all right, buddy, keep flexing. No um, so yeah, we do have the one Patreon episode in the bank. Um, if you'd like to join, please do. Um, and I want to thank our current patrons, Kristen Duncan, Devante DeRoma, your mother, your Charlotte Mallorich. <laughs> James Otto, Bishop Mew, rural oh, J- Marxist. James Otto, uh, I'm, me and him follow each other on Instagram. That's a cool dude. We, we talk a little bit. Hey, I didn't notice he uh, joined our Patreon. What's up, James? <laughs> These are all cool dudes. Yep. Cool dudes for supporting us. We appreciate it so much. Uh, continuing, we got uh, MC, John Bovifane420, Aaron Jankowski, Kyle Lemieux, Jean-Claude Manhands, Mail, Phil, Carl Marx, and Jay Reese. Thank you guys so much. We cannot thank you enough. Seriously. Uh, um, I think that's about all I got. If there's anything else anybody has, we'll wrap it up there. And again, please send us some feedback. If you guys want to reach out to us at turnleftispodcast at gmail.com or on any of our social medias that you can find on our link tree. Let us know if you guys can tolerate this type of an episode where we don't edit out all the flubs and, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure I'm going to listen back to this and cringe a whole bunch. But if you guys can tolerate, if you think this is good, then that would actually help us a lot. And, we would be able to actually pump out these episodes on a regular basis because the editing was really what was holding us back. Yeah. Um, so if this is all right for you guys, please give us your feedback or if this is not tolerable and you'd rather have like episodes less often, but more polished, like we have been doing up to this point, then that's something we would take into account too. We're still trying to figure this out. So, all right. I think that's about it. Well, thank you everyone right. for listening. Going. Tell a friend if you uh, like it and uh, yeah, give us some good reviews on iTunes and uh, whatever podcast app you listen on. Thank you gentlemen. Thanks again, everyone. Take care. See you guys. Take care, comrades.